All right, well, good morning. Hope everybody's doing well. Want to welcome those of you joining us online or maybe from one of our campuses. Even though we're in lots of different places, we are still one Seacoast family. So welcome, family. I want to ask just out of curiosity, did you have a good Christmas? Good, good. I hope that you got something you were hoping to receive at Christmas. Let me ask, how many of you got a new phone for Christmas? Anybody? A few of you. All right. And this is a question for all of us here and at the campuses. Are you somebody who sends a lot of text messages? Go ahead. No shame. Do you send? Uh, yeah. How many of you have a neighbor who should have their hand up right now, but doesn't anybody? <laughs> and when you send your text messages, do you type them out or do you dictate into your phone? How many of you get your phone to do the work for you? Anybody? Now notice, these are not usually the youngest hands up in the room. <laughs> and that's because if you're between the ages of 15 and 25, you can type 4,000 words a minute just with your thumbs. That's all it takes. It's annoying and amazing all at one time. Well, I did not get a phone for Christmas, I, mostly because I didn't. I like my phone just fine. I don't need a new phone. And I thought I liked it okay until a few weeks ago when I got a text message from a friend who was asking me if I could help him find a small group. Now, I was excited to get the message because I've been praying for this friend, and I know how good a small group would be for him. We all need community. That's why small groups are important. And so right away, I texted back, yes, I would love to help you. Tell me what you're looking for. We talked for a bit. And then I said, listen, I'm going to connect you with my friend, Jeff Reppard, who is the Seacoast pastor over all our small group ministries. And, and then the the conversation just stopped. And so I didn't think about it because I was busy, but went on about my day and later on realized, hey, I haven't texted me back. You know what, what happened there? Did, does he know Jeff? Does he not like Jeff? Like what's going on? So I went and looked at the text and I saw where he asked for a group and I said, yes, I'd love to help. And then I noticed it. When I said the Seacoast pastor who oversees small groups, my phone interpreted as the psycho pastor who oversees small groups. Be careful what you tell your phone. Who wants to talk to the psycho pastor ever about anything? I really, really was trying to help this guy find a small group, but my phone was working against me. And today we're kicking off a brand new series that we're calling Battlegrounds, where we're going to take a look at the spiritual battles we face and how they work against us as we try to live out our faith in this world. And so before we jump into that, I want, to, I want us to all get on the same page here. But just to talk about, like, if, if you're not following along, we're in a series called Battlegrounds, and today we're going to talk about the enemy we face. So, yes, today's message is about Satan. We're so glad you're here. We're excited about encouraging you. But we need to get on the same page about this enemy we face, because I'm going to make you a promise. My promise is this. You're going to be encouraged by this message. Ultimately, all of us are going to be encouraged and strengthened by this message. But I want us to get on some common ground here. So let's talk about the misunderstandings about the devil first. OK, first myth about Satan is this, that that Satan is responsible for all the evil in the world. Now, this is the idea that the devil made me do it, right? Now, and it would be nice. It'd be nice if this were true, because it would absolve us from a lot of guilt. But if we're honest about this, we've helped. We've helped a little bit. 
Like we could argue that all of the evil in this world originated with him, but we've taken it to another level. We have taken his bait and believed his lies, and we've done some pretty terrible things in this world. So we've helped. We have to acknowledge that. The second myth about Satan is this, that God and the devil are in this constant battle, this cosmic tug of war where it's a good versus evil thing. Sometimes God is winning. Sometimes the devil is winning. And in theology, we call this concept dualism. And it's garbage. It's just not true. Because dualism presupposes that God's strength and the enemy's strength are roughly the same. And that couldn't be further from the truth. There's no force in this universe that rivals God's strength. So dualism just doesn't work. You can clap for that. You don't need my permission to clap at any point, by the way. Just go ahead when it hits you. First, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. First John 4 reminds us of this when it says, He who is in us is greater than he who is in this world. So we need to keep that in mind. And the last myth about Satan that we're going to deal with today is this. The devil can't hurt us. I don't know who came up with that, but I'd like to talk to him. Because that's not true either. He absolutely can hurt us. I mean, just look at Job. Or, or take a look at the guy we're going to meet today. Or look at your own life. The devil can hurt us. He wants to wreak havoc in this world. But the devil can never have us. And that's important. We need to know that. Because if there's something that God wants to do in our lives, and the devil can undo it, like, then we have a problem with God's sovereignty. And that's just not going to work because there's too much evidence in Scripture to support God's sovereignty. So, yes, the devil wants to hurt us, but the devil cannot have us. And so all of this gives us a basic idea about Satan. But our framework for today is coming from Mark's gospel, where we meet a man who is demon-possessed. Here's what Mark tells us. When Jesus got out of the boat... A man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Now Mark tells us that when this man saw Jesus, he came barreling towards him down the hill, running at full speed and fell on his knees before him, then cried out, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. Now, the first thing that I want us to see in the text is this. I want us to see the reaction, the demon's reaction to seeing Jesus. He ran and fell on his knees before him. Begging for mercy. And what we're left here with is a revelation that despite how much Satan hates us and how much he wants to hurt us, he knows that his place before the most high God is on his knees in full submission. He knows that. And what you'll notice if you read the passage carefully is that it all starts with the word they. First word of the first verse is they. The disciples were with him. They got out of the boat with him. But you also notice 
that the demon inside this man never once addressed any of them. For the entirety of the passage, the demon only addressed Jesus. And why is that? Well, I believe it's because he knew better. Let me explain. Many of you know that I can be a perfectionist. If you don't know that about me, then you just haven't been paying attention. But I grew up having convinced myself that my acceptance and my worth, that they were based on my performance. And so the upside of something like that is you tend to be very hardworking and you tend to be good at a lot of things. The downside of that is that you tend to be very self-critical. And so I remember several years ago, a man, we met a man, Dana and I met a man who came to pray over us. And while he prayed over us, it felt particularly aimed at me. And at one point as he was praying, he lifted his head up and he looked at me and he said, the devil likes to bully you, son. And he's right. Because I look at where Matthew, our 26-year-old is, he's been in somewhat of a crisis of faith for like the last 10 years. And when I look at Matt, I tend to ask myself questions like, where did I go wrong? What didn't I give him? How did I fail him? And I know that in my most clear-minded moments, those are not the right questions. Those are not fair questions. But sometimes I let the devil bully me. But how many of you know that when the bully is confronted by the father of the person they are bullying, they become unusually quiet. And that's because the bully knows he is uncomparably outmatched. Because despite how much the bully, the devil wants to bully me, I know that the most high God stands between me and him. And that's why the demon never once addresses the disciples who were standing next to Jesus. He wouldn't dare. I share this with all of you because I want us to have a proper baseline of our enemy. He may be infinitely stronger than we are, but he is infinitely weaker than the God we serve. But it's still important that we know our enemy. And that we understand the tactics he's going to try to use against us. So our first point on our outline today, and if you're following along, you can do that in the Seacoast app, is this. We have an enemy who wants to divide us. We have an enemy who wants to divide us. Most of you know that Jesus had 12 disciples. But he spent most of his time with three, Peter, James, and John. Now, you're probably familiar with Peter. He was one of the fishermen that Jesus called to himself. And you need to know that should never have happened. That should never have happened for at least a couple of reasons. First of all, if you're, if you're wanting to create a movement, then, then wouldn't you want people of means and influence? That was not Peter. He was a common fisherman. But the second reason this should never have happened is because rabbis never called their students to themselves. It was the student's job to convince the rabbi that they had what it took, that they were worthy of following him as a student. And then maybe 
Maybe the rabbi would agree to take them on and let the student follow them. So it's actually very significant that Jesus calls his own disciples because that should never have happened. But in doing so, Jesus shows us that first, he intends to do extraordinary things through very ordinary people. That's good news for you and me. But second, he shows us that while every other world religion is focused on helping man find God, Jesus wanted to make it very clear that God had come to find man. But despite all of this, Peter made his fair share of mistakes, which is what makes him so relatable to us, right? And at the top of that list was the time when he denied ever knowing Jesus. By this time, Peter had spent about three years with Jesus. When he was arrested, all of the disciples fled. And not long after that, we find Peter in a courtyard warming himself by himself far enough away that he could keep an eye on what was happening to Jesus. And at one point, someone asks him, don't you know that man? Three times they asked him and three times he denied ever knowing who Jesus was. And what I want us to notice here is that in that moment, when Peter denied knowing Jesus, where were James and John? Where were his boys? Where was his support? And that's the point. When Peter denied knowing Jesus, he was essentially by himself. About 30 years later, he would write a letter to a group of first century Christians, and in it, he would say this, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, that's an interesting picture Peter paints for us. And I don't think it's on accident, having experienced what he did. He wanted to make it very clear exactly how our enemy intends to hurt God's people. And if you've ever watched a lion hunt, then you might be familiar with this how they sneak up on the pack very slowly, almost unnoticeably. And then even when they start to chase, they're only jogging at maybe half speed until one animal splinters off from the pack and then it's full-on sprint mode until they can catch that animal and it's game over. The lion's goal is never, ever to catch the pack. Because the pack can protect itself against the lion. The lion's goal is to divide the animals. To get one to believe that its best strategy for survival is to go it alone. Because when it's alone, that's when it's most vulnerable. Just like Peter. The devil has the same strategy with you and me. He wants to divide us. He intends to get us alone. And Peter thought in that moment that his greatest struggle was against the authorities who had arrested Jesus, who were plotting against him. He didn't realize that a far more dangerous enemy was at the same time plotting against him, creating fear in him, isolating him, making him so vulnerable that he would eventually deny knowing the one person who, when he looked at him, saw more than a fisherman. And this is important for us to understand because there will be times when you find yourself fighting against one another, 
battling with each other, in conflict with each other. It may be your spouse, maybe your parents, maybe some friends or family members. But don't forget this. While you are focused on fighting against them, there is someone else who is focused on fighting against you. And he wants you focused on someone else because then you never see his attack coming. A good question for us to keep in our minds is this. When we find ourselves angry with one another, battling against one another, ask yourself, is this the real battle? Or is there another battle being fought against me in the shadows? Paul understood this. And he wrote it down this way, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And now it's, it's worth slowing down here too, just to notice the language Paul uses. He chooses the word wrestle, which in the original Greek is pale, or struggle, excuse me. In the original Greek, that's pale, and it means to wrestle. If you know anything about wrestling, then you know that it's a contest between two people where one has the goal of literally holding down the other. That's the goal. And once one of them has been held down long enough, they'll simply give up. Which is a very helpful picture of what our enemy wants to do to us. He wants to divide us until we're isolated and alone. He wants to create a one-on-one -on -one matchup, just you and him, where he can hold us down for long enough that we will simply give up. And it's important for us to know how he intends to hold us down, which brings us to the second point on your outline, because while we have an enemy who wants to divide us, we also have an enemy who wants to deceive us. Our enemy intends to hold us down with lies. And this is one of his very best strategies. In fact, Jesus says this about the devil when he was talking with a group of religious leaders. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning. He's always hated the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character for he is a liar and the father of lies. C.S. Lewis wrote an allegory from the perspective of a devil named Screwtape. And as Screwtape was talking with a group of younger devils, demons, they were talking about how they could influence the people of God. At one point, they were talking about their strategy of deception. And he said this, that indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope. Soft underfoot, without sudden turns, without milestones, without signposts. It's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. Thomas Aquinas, a 13th century theologian, said that evil always demands a disguise. Which is not all that profound if you... Think about this. A good fisherman will always tell you, you need to use the bait to hide the hook. And just what is it that our enemy is trying to hide from us? I believe he wants to hide at least two things from us. He wants to deceive us in two very specific ways. 
First, the greatest threat of any enemy is to get you to believe they are not the enemy. Now, this is why the attacks on 9-11 were so effective. A group of people was able to present themselves as something other than terrorists. They presented as normal, unassuming passengers. And then from within our system, they were able to impose their agenda of hurting as many people as possible. And make no mistake, our enemy has the same agenda. He wants to create as much pain and confusion as possible, and he intends to do it by convincing us he is not our enemy, that he's not dangerous at all. The second thing the enemy wants to hide from us is this, our identity. He wants to hide our identity. He wants to deceive us about who we are. And if we look at Mark's account of the man at the tombs, we see Jesus do something very interesting. After the man sprints towards Jesus and falls at his feet, Jesus asks him a very simple question. He looks straight at him and says, what is your name? The man replies, legion, for we are many. And it's important to note here who is answering the question. It's not the man. It's the demon inside the man. And that's because sometimes we allow ourselves to be defined by what has consumed us instead of who has created us. Sometimes we let ourselves be defined by what has consumed us instead of who has created us. And this is what makes our enemy so cunning. He gets us to believe that we are somebody we are not. He deceives us into believing and living as people who are wholly different than who we were made to be. And if you don't believe that, then you just start paying attention to the full-on assault that is happening to our children right now. Many of you are so angry at our government right now for the decisions they're making about our children. But let me offer you this. Let me offer you this. In this war for the identities of our children, our leaders are not the true enemy. Our enemy doesn't care about them any more than he cares about our children. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't show up and vote and do all we can to make a difference. We should absolutely do all of that. But we need to learn to do it with a kindness and conviction that is compelling because shouting is not always compelling. Lobbing grenades on social media is not compelling. You can be upset with our leaders, but my question is, do you pray for them? Do you pray for them? Our country is going to need a lot of prayer this year. We're not heading in a great direction. And because our enemy is a deceiver, he wants us to believe that everything is fine. We stand to lose a lot more than our financial rating this year. We stand to lose our identity. You may not know it, but this happened several thousand years ago, too. After King Solomon built the temple and was dedicating it to the Lord, God showed him that even more than the temple, it was the people who needed to be dedicated to God. The people needed to be reminded of who they were. So God said this to Solomon, if my people who are called by my name 
will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven. I will forgive them their sin and I will heal their land. As the people of God, it is time for us to remember that we are called by his name. It is time for us to humble ourselves. It is time for us to pray. It's time for us to turn away from the things that don't honor him. And it's time for us to seek his face because we need him to heal us. We need him to heal our land. And if you're looking for an opportunity to do this, then you may want to join us tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning, we'll kick off our 21 days of prayer for the year. This is our effort to create a space where we can come together as a church right here every morning and pray and seek his face. So you are invited. Come join us. There's one other thing we need to notice here in Mark's account of the miracle. In this one passage, the full intentions of our enemy are revealed. If you've ever wondered what he wants to do, it's shown to us right here. Mark tells us that the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go in them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd about 2000 in number rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. If you've ever wondered about our enemy's true intentions, it's revealed right here in the fate of the pigs. He wants to destroy us. And I realize that's not very encouraging. But it's also not fair to lie to you. However, if you've ever wondered about our Savior's true intentions, they're also revealed right here. Mark tells us that those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. Now, it can be easy for us to miss the full weight of this statement. Sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. Sitting there was a cultural reference in Hebrew to being at peace. Dressed is the opposite of naked, which in Hebrew culture is a pinnacle moment of shame. And in his right mind was an idiom for what it meant to have clarity. So when Mark tells us that this man was sitting there dressed and in his right mind, he means to tell us that he was again, finally at peace. His shame removed, his clarity restored. So while it is our, in, our enemy's intention to strip us and shame us, it is our Savior's intention to restore and renew us. So let me recap where we are, because this brings us to the last and the best point of our outline. We have an enemy who wants to divide us. We have an enemy who wants to deceive us. because. We have an enemy who cannot destroy us. We have an enemy who cannot destroy us. Remember 1 John 4. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in this world. But we need to know, even though that's true, it doesn't mean that the father of lies won't still try to lie to us. And perhaps the biggest lie this enemy is pushing is the idea that this life is all there is. 
This life is all there is. You got one life to live. Live it up. Do whatever you want. Do whatever makes you feel good. And while this is very popular, just imagine for a moment what it would look like. Imagine what our world would look like. Imagine what your own life would look like if you did whatever made you feel like feel good in the moment. It would be a dumpster fire. Wouldn't it? In fact, I'll go out on a limb here, but I'm pretty sure you'll agree with me. Most of our worst mistakes in life came as a result of doing whatever made us feel good in the moment. And there's a word here in this text that really needs to concern us. In verse 3, Mark tells us that the man lived among the tombs where no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. That word anymore implies that there used to be a time when it was possible to bind him, when it was possible to restrain him, but not anymore. What this means for us is that the longer we are willing to let evil hold space in our lives, the stronger it becomes. The stronger its hold on our lives becomes. This word anymore is given to us as a warning that we can't play around with evil and expect it won't devastate us and those around us. But this live for the moment mentality, it's not new. It's been around for thousands of years. 300 years before Jesus, there was a Greek philosopher named Epicurus. He's famous for the idea of eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we may die. He also promotes the idea that death can't hurt us. And it might surprise you, but I think he's crazy. Death absolutely can hurt us. Whenever death occurs, there's pain. When my father died in 2009, it hurt. When I lost a good friend last September, it hurt. Even for the children of God, I believe death can hurt us. But I also believe death can never have us. And that's important for us to remember. Death is a painful reality we must all bear in this life. But for the child of God, death is no longer the end. And I think that what scares men most about death is not that death is the end, but that death is not the end. Because if death is not the end, then we've got some things to think about. We've got to take very seriously the words of John when he says, God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life and whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So if our enemy wants, knows that he cannot destroy us yet wants to divide and deceive us, you have to ask yourselves, why is he working so hard? And John Eldridge gives us a perfect answer. He says, the story of your life is the long and brutal assault of your heart by the one who knows what you could be and fears it. By the one who knows what you could be and he fears it. Let me close with this. Growing up, I was a competitive swimmer. And when I say competitive, I mean like a little, little stupid, a little ridiculous. We practiced twice a day. We had meets every single weekend. It was just out of control. And as I got older, 
I began to swim in the longer events until eventually my best event was the mile. And you know, God loved the parents of the children who swim the mile. They got to sit there forever while their child just goes back and forth. <laughs> I didn't have much of a sprinter engine when I was young. I had more of an endurance engine, and I was willing to suffer anybody, out-suffer anybody in the pool. But I remember we used to swim against this team in Northern Virginia that was notoriously good, and they held most of the records for these events, including the mile. But I'd been creeping up on it all season. And I remember, I remember arriving at their pool one time. And as I was walking down the pool deck, I had to pass their entire team, and I could hear them talking about me. Hey, isn't that the kid who swims the mile? And I remember feeling good that they had heard of me, that they were talking about me. But I also remember feeling very intimidated. So my head was down. And I also, also remember them saying, it wasn't his dad, the Olympic swimmer. My head lifted. Puffed out my chest a little bit. And I realized that even though they were not intimidated by my power, they were very intimidated by my father's power. Friends, that is exactly how the enemy sees us. He may not be impressed by your power, but he is terrified of your father's power. And it's in our Father's power that we are meant to take refuge and place our confidence and hope. God has and forever will remain unchallenged in this universe by any force. There's nothing that threatens him, nothing that worries him. Jackie Hill Perry says it like this. God can never be controlled or intimidated or challenged. If every sea in this world twisted itself into a hurricane tall enough to meet the clouds and wide enough to cover a thousand cities, its knees would still bow and eventually break at God's command to be still. So yes, we have an enemy who wants to divide and deceive us. And yes, that enemy is infinitely stronger than we are. But he is infinitely weaker than our most high God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. That despite having an adversary all of the time. We also have a friend who sticks closer than a brother and a most high God who stands between us and our enemy. Help us to live into that hope, into that reality, and with that kind of courage in 2024. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.